This morning we're going to be in Titus, the book of Titus, uh, and we're going to do this over the next four weeks, but really look at this book and talk about the purpose in it in a series entitled Every Good Work. We're going to talk about the book of Titus. Why does Paul write this little letter? It's a, it's a short letter, just three chapters. You could read it in less than 30 minutes. It's one of the many letters and many books in Scripture that can read very quickly. But in its length, it's all short. It's, there's some brevity to it, but there's deeply profound things we're going to see for the church, for each of us, and our life. This is Titus. Chapter 1, beginning of verse 1, we're going to read through verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. So there's this, uh, there's this old adage in, in music. If you know me, you know I lo- really love music. I know a number of you do too. Uh, there's this old adage in music that says, don't bore us, get to the chorus. You ever heard of this? It makes sense, right? Because for so many of us, we realize that the chorus of a song or the refrain is like the main thing. It's the main thing and it's the part that gets sung over and over the most. It gets repeated consistently. We do that here in worship for a very important reason. Wrapped up in that chorus, in that succinct set of lines, you get the point, the message, the theme of a song. It's what it's all about. And songwriters, in turn, have used choruses historically, not only in the center of songs where we often find them, perhaps there's an introduction and then there's a verse and there might be a pre-chorus and this build to this big chorus so you know that it's the main thing. Songwriters have not only used choruses in the middle of songs, but also at the beginning. From the outset of the song, the very beginning, they want to share what the main message is. There's this little band you might have heard of called the Beatles, and they do this really, really well. They've used the chorus at the beginning of songs a number of times. Songs like She Loves You, Can't Buy Me Love, Help, Eleanor Rigby, Strawberry Fields Forever. All of these songs begin with the chorus. In fact, about 28% of Beatles songs start with the chorus. Now, the point of today is not for me to tell you that I'm a nerd about the Beatles, right? But it's to understand that they saw something important in that. Why? Because it helps the listener, it helps their audience understand from the very start what the point of the song is. Here's how I think this relates to Titus and a number of other books that we read in the New Testament. When you and I pick up the scriptures and often we'll read a letter, we'll look at something like Titus in the New Testament and we'll see that very first part. And traditionally, I think a number of us are apt to really glaze over it. I don't know if many of us have ever done a devotion or a Bible study on the first four verses of Titus, right? 
Because it looks like a lot of other books that Paul might write, or even the ones that Peter might write or James might write, as an introduction. It's just kind of the beginning, and we're going to get to the good stuff later. Right, The chorus is going to come later. Because after all, it's mostly greetings and all these long sentences that are strung together. There's, there's commas. You read that whole thing, and especially in 2 and 3, you're like, shouldn't there be a period here? Right? Well, shouldn't we start something else? Like, I think Paul would get crushed today in modern-day English. Run-on sentences, right? A structure that's not really akin to what we normally see. Here is the thing. These introductory verses are so important. Especially in this book. We can't just give them a cursory reading and just kind of glaze over them and move past them. The Apostle Paul is writing to his friend, his co-worker, Titus. Titus is his friend and co-worker who has ministered with Paul in the gospel in various circumstances and now is on the island of Crete. The largest island of the Greek islands in the Mediterranean Sea. There's a series of churches there. There's a group of churches that have become corrupted. And part of the book, the theme of this whole book, Paul's writing to Titus to say, here's what can be done so that God is glorified and honored in his church and in homes, in the lives of the people in Crete and in the world. At the start of this book, in this introduction, Paul makes clear... Something like a chorus that's going to be repeated throughout the book. The heartbeat of why he's writing to them. He tells them from the outset, from the very beginning, why he's writing. And this is what we find. These three very specific things. What Titus received and what believers in Christ, you and I need to receive, is the incomparable truth that is found in these four verses. Because in these verses, we're going to see three things very distinctly. One is the character of God. So this morning, as you read and see these verses, specifically verse 2, you're going to see the character of God. Second, you ought to see the consistency of God. We sang that for a reason this morning. Thou changest not the consistency of God. And then finally, God's interaction with us, the calling of God, so we can understand what God is calling us to. The character, the consistency, the calling of God. First, God's character. Look back into verse 2, and you see Paul say this phrase, just four words that have immense power. When he describes that the purpose that he's writing is for the sake of the faith, so that these believers would be built up in faith, that they would understand the knowledge of truth, that which is true about who God is and what he's done, That it's for the purpose of godliness of being transformed into the image of Christ being sanctified. He says, God who never lies. This is how he describes the character of God. At the center of Paul's message, and we'll miss it if we don't stop and see it. At the center of his message is God's character. So Titus receives this letter knowing that he's going to get information, knowing that he's going to get assignment, knowing that there's going to be things to do, there's going to be instruction, and there's going to be wisdom, and there's going to be encouragement, and all of these things. But Paul is very quick to say, you cannot miss the fount, the source, the reason, the why behind everything you do. It's who God is and what he's done for you. He says, God who never lies. Why is it important for Paul to focus in a central way on God as truthful? 
two very specific things. One, and we're going to really get into the history and the background of where Titus is a little more next, next week, but Titus finds himself in this place, this island called Crete. And it's this island in the middle of the Mediterranean that's connected to Greece. I mean, it's connected at least politically and socially to Greece and, and proximity-wise as well. But the people in Crete are notorious for being liars. You ever known somebody from someplace and made an assumption about them based on the place that they've come from? In this world, in this day, in Paul and Titus's day... Crete was a place full of people who did not speak the truth to one another. They actually unabashedly took advantage of one another and sought, sought money and gain from one another. They wanted to take advantage of each other. They were a greedy people. In fact, the word cretizo, where the word Crete comes from, it means someone who's a liar. It means someone who's dishonest. This whole island, this whole place where Titus is ministering and seeking to care for these churches is characterized by a lack of truth. So Paul is very clear from the outset to help Titus understand who God is and the thing that's in his character. And more than just something that characterizes him is that God is the truth. In three ways this morning, I want to show you God as truth in a Trinitarian way. Father, Son, and Spirit. This is Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. We're going to look at the scriptures to see God as not changing and as true always. Exodus 34, verse 6 says this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This verse comes from Exodus chapter 34. And to give you the background, this is the passage in which Moses has gone up on Mount Sinai as the Lord has instructed him. Now, prior to this, the Israelites couldn't wait for Moses to come down from the mountain and meeting with God. So they fashioned a golden calf. These people were desirous of worshiping something. So instead of worshiping the God who delivered them from slavery and oppression out of Egypt, instead they began worshiping this golden calf. Because they were unbelieving and impatient, Moses breaks the first two tablets. Now Moses is back up on Mount Sinai, and having interceded for the people, God renews his covenant with Israel. Because Moses intercedes for them. And God states very plainly his character. And this is what we find, that the Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, and faithfulness. We've confessed this morning audibly. I heard you do it. Great is your faithfulness to me. We recognize and we confess God's faithfulness. To say in another way, great is thy faithfulness. What does it mean to sing? What does it mean to say those words? It's an echo of the very truth of Scripture about who God the Father is. Because the Hebrew word here, emeth, also means truth. Faithfulness means the action, the representative nature of that which is true. So God the Father is depicted as true. It's important for Titus and all of us as believers to remember God the Father as true. Second, the Son. God the Son. This is John 14, 6. This will be familiar to a number of you. This is Jesus with his disciples 
John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, he's saying to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So here's the background for, for this. And Jesus in his final days, this town on earth, is telling his disciples, though they don't understand him, that he's going to the Father and that he's going to prepare a place for them. But Thomas is so bold and he speaks up on behalf of everyone in verse 5. And he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know where you are going? And this is what Jesus responds with. He takes Thomas and he says, this isn't about direction as if you're just following a map. He says, this is about divinity. This is about my character, who I am. Jesus says, I am the truth. Jesus is the truth. God the Father is the truth. And then in John 16, Jesus would describe to his disciples not just the role or the action of the Spirit, but the very character of the Spirit of God. John 16, 13 says this, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So in John's Gospel, we get this beautiful picture Of Jesus being with his disciples. In chapter 14, he's comforting them, right? He's letting them know he's going to prepare a place for them. And he meets them with his profound truth. I'm the way, and I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And in John 15, he describes himself as the true vine, right? Teaches them, tells them to abide in him. Gives them the instruction that they're to love one another, not just with some love, but to love one another as he has loved them. And then he declares to them that the Spirit will come upon them. And he also declares to them that the Spirit is truth. This is crucial for Titus to understand that the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, can be trusted. And this is the simple, short way Paul reminds him of all of these things that he knows as a believer. He says, God doesn't lie. He is true and he is trustworthy. The character of God will be what Titus depends on as he seeks to minister to churches where he is. Second, we see the consistency of God. It's important for Paul not to just describe the character of God, but also the consistency, the frequency in which he demonstrates that character. Look at what he says. He says, in God who never lies, it's not enough for Paul to just say, God doesn't lie. In so many ways, language-wise, linguistically, that would be sufficient. God doesn't lie. But it's important for Paul here in this moment to say, God who never lies. And he does something deeply profound in these verses. He helps us see the degree of his character by his consistency. Because he shows that God is not a God that's just been truthful in the past. He's not a God that's only truthful in the present. He's a God who's trustworthy past, present, and future. Look in verse 2 in the way... Paul describes God's faithfulness, his truth. He says, of this God who never lies, that he promised this eternal life before the ages began. Before the ages began. Sometimes this is hard for us to wrap our head around. 
But I think it's really important for us to recognize the scope, the breadth, the mystery of the God who did not start. The God who has always been. Before the ages means before the dawn of time. What does that mean? That means God precedes it, that God must have been. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Paul would say it in this way here. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He has saved us and called us to a holy life. These are things that we understand. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of his own purpose and his grace. And then when, was, when did that take place? When did it happen? This grace was given us in Jesus Christ before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, rather, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The work of God's faithfulness doesn't begin with our first breath. It doesn't begin with our recognition of who he is. The work of God's faithfulness precedes time. It has always been. Paul wants Titus to know this. He wants believers to know this. The Spirit wants you and I to know this. That God has always been faithful and true. Second, he describes it not only in the past but in the present. At the proper time, he says in verse 3, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. What's Paul saying? He's talking in the present. He's saying that God's promise is consistent with the here and now in which he speaks. How can he say this? How can he say this? He can say this because he knows Christ has died. He knows Christ has risen. And he's presently testifying to that transforming power. You look back into the ancient text in the Greek and in the earliest writings, this word proper time manifested, it simply means that he is revealed now in this very moment. And that can be trusted because we know Paul's story. If you go back to Acts 9, Paul's saying, I can testify to the Lord because he revealed himself to me and he audibly called me to preach his word. He heard the very words of Jesus. And then we get the story in Acts 9 of Ananias, who the Lord calls in a vision to go to Paul. And Ananias says, I don't know if you've heard about this guy, but this is a bad idea. He's been out here stoning people. He's against Christians. Don't you understand? This one Saul of Tarsus, because Paul's not Paul yet, this one Saul of Tarsus has persecuted Christians. But Jesus says to him, he's my chosen instrument to take my name before the Gentiles. So Paul's saying, look, I'm living example of the truth of God and his faithfulness right now. And look into verse 2, you can see these things resting upon and in contingency with, in verse 2, in hope of eternal life. In hope of eternal life. The simplest way to articulate the future and what's to come is not one of wishful thinking, but for Paul it's this word hope, and it means confident expectation. 
that this is surely going to come to pass because a promise has been made and the one who made the promise has been faithful in all of them. God has been true, he is true, and he will be true. Why? Not because truth is just something that God does. He does it because he is truth. And he is consistently true. So the chorus, the thing that Paul wants Titus to see is the character of God and his truth. The consistency of God. And then finally he wants Titus to see the very calling of God. In recognition of God's character and his consistency, we have responsibility. And even more than that responsibility, I would describe it in this way, we have opportunity. Not just a job, but a joy to step into the things that God is calling us to. What is God's calling? When you look at these verses, you can see that godliness in verse 1, the last word of verse 1, godliness is the point, it's the thrust, it's why Paul is writing to Titus. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. We're going to see in the coming weeks all of the situation and why Paul is so concerned with the life of the church on Crete. Because succinctly, I could just tell you now that what's happening is you've got dishonest people, people who are in authority in the church, and Paul's going to describe to Titus, look, these people are corrupt. And the church doesn't look like the church. This doesn't look like a people who've been redeemed by a gracious and giving and loving and merciful, faithful, true God. Instead, they look like people who take advantage of one another. And the home lives of people on Crete are messed up. People are deceiving one another. They're not honoring one another. People aren't being cared for. Children aren't being loved and trained well in the faith. And quite frankly, the Christian life doesn't really hold water or bear witness the way it should to those around them. Because these believers, these people in church are being led astray in so many ways. So Paul's writing to Titus, and he wants people on Crete to experience and to move toward and be transformed in a life of godliness. When you read those words, which accords with godliness, this is what it's saying. It doesn't just mean it kind of goes along with or it's a part of that. And I think for you and me, if we read it quickly, we might just see it that way. All right, well, the purpose is for the faith to be built up. Of God's elect, the people he's chosen, the people that are trusting in him. Okay, and they need to know the knowledge of the truth. And those things kind of are paired with godliness, as if godliness is just a part of it. But Paul's not describing here good behavior. It's something much, much more than that. Paul is stating to Titus and to us that belief in God's promises, belief in the good news of Jesus, taking God at his word in what he's done in Jesus will ultimately transform us. This word is very specific here, accords with. It means that the goal of faith in the Lord, the knowledge of him, is godliness. Not good behavior, not to be a little better, not to be nicer, not to do bad things less, but something so much more radically different than that. It's this, to be transformed into the image of Christ. You heard Brian pray it this morning and really echo the call of this passage from the Hebrews passage, 2 Corinthians three eighteen. 
Paul would say this to those at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He'd say, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being not made better. Not a, not a, not a little less bad. Not nicer. Not kinder. Not more disciplined. This. We're being transformed into the image from one degree of glory to another. And then he describes the source of how that happens in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. It's the Lord who is spirit. The Lord is the one who does this. It's not our power by which we're transformed. It comes from the spirit working in us. So why is this the chorus? Why is Paul so concerned with these things? It's clear motivation. He writes to them for the sake of the faith of those in Crete, for these people to walk in faith, to live in the knowledge of the Lord, to live out lives of godliness in a broken society so that friends and neighbors can come to know the glory of the God that created them. But in order to do that, they have to see God for who He is. They have to understand His character. They have to know His goodness. They have to be reminded of the truth of who He is and what He's done for them in Jesus. Because it's their belief in God and what Jesus has done. That's the seed, that's the source, that's the place from which any action of godliness will flow through the transformation of the Spirit. So what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. It means believing in the gospel leads to living in the gospel with one another and living out the gospel in the world. Over the next three weeks, we're going to see in deeper ways Paul's instructions to Titus and how it serves as a framework, not just as a scenario for all of these people in the ancient past in Crete, but ultimately how these words of Scripture that have been penned, carried along by the Holy Spirit. Paul was carried along by the Spirit as he writes this. And it provides this really helpful understanding of what it's like to live in the church. To live in our homes and to live in the world in a way that glorifies God. John Stott's analysis is helpful here. This is what he does. He basically says chapter 1 and and take verses 5 and on through 16. This is going to be focused on the doctrine and the duty of the church. Chapter 2 is this place that's really focused on the doctrine, the things that are true that we're to live in, the guidelines, the things that we're called to do, the duty of what it's like to live in our home. And then finally, chapter 3 is focused on our doctrine and duty in the world. So we're going to see how the character of God that Paul's articulated should be demonstrated in the church. And in our homes and in the world, we're going to see how the consistency of God, God's faithfulness, will never live up to it. We'll never be what He is. But we are being transformed in such a way that our lives should now look more consistent as we grow and we're being sanctified. And we want to be more consistent in the church and more consistent in our homes and more consistent in the world only through the power of His Spirit and practically what it looks like for us to live out and demonstrate The calling of God here in the church, in the homes in which we live, and in the world. This is the chorus for Paul. This is who God is. 
and what he's done. And as our worship team comes and we prepare, not just to close the service, I want to be very clear, we're going to take a moment, we're going to continue in worship. But we've got the opportunity to sing our faith together. To sing that which is true. In a choral way, to say, this is the main thing. It all comes down to this. And we're going to sing this song this morning called, This I Believe. And it's based on the creeds of the faith. And that's a scary word to folks at times. Creeds are not scripture. Instead, they're statements of our essential beliefs about God that have been revealed in scripture. The word creed, it comes from this Latin word credo, and it just means I believe. And so the things that we're going to sing together this morning are the truths that we believe. We've, we've sung these things this morning already. We've already said and confessed what we believe. That God is worthy of being worshipped. That we can take him at his word that he's true. That he's been faithful to us in a corporate way, in an individual way. In the lives of our families, in, in, in the tiniest of moments. He's been faithful to us. And that his mercies are new. Every day we wake up to a new day, new experiences, and there's new things that are ahead of us. But here's what we can trust in. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. A God who is unchanging, merciful, slow to anger, compassionate, faithful to us. If you will, I'd encourage you to stand. And let's take a moment uh, and, and pray together. And at the conclusion of the prayer, I've got the, the privilege and the, the opportunity this morning to spend time with the Harrelson family who will be joining our church and to celebrate uh, along with you the baptism of their daughter, Taryn. Incredibly excited about this opportunity. I know you'll be praying for them uh, as we worship together and confess our faith in the Lord, to the Lord, and to one another. If you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, Your faithfulness is greater than we can imagine. Father, I know so many of us in this room can think about moments in life and, and probably, Father, have gone to places where we doubted your faithfulness only to see later on that you were working all things to the good for us in ways that we could not imagine. Father, as we seek to be faithful Brothers and sisters in this church, as we seek to minister and care for our families, Father, as we seek to share the gospel with the world, you help us trust in, rest on, lean in your character, who you are, and what you've done for us in Jesus Christ, who while we were yet sinners, died for us. God, would you help us marvel and worship and wonder be astounded by the consistency that you never fail us. And Father, because of those things, 
Would you allow us to obediently, faithfully step into the calling that you've given us to love you and to love our neighbor? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.